Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships. On the web at maincf.org. It's 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Overall. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, a major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. How does a family face the realities of heroin addiction? What are the forces that pull that family apart, and what might compel them to come together across generations from beyond a failed marriage? In her new novel, Cost, Roxana Robinson has given us a family whose strengths and frailties we'll readily recognize, a family who, despite their doubts, does not shrink from the darkness of addiction. Welcome um, this morning to um, Talk of the Towns, Roxana. Thank you so much for having me here. Great. Um, your um, new novel has uh, just been published, um, but you've written much, um, short stories, um, a major piece on Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, it must be uh, a, a great kind of thing to look back and, and see the book titles kind of uh, there on a, on a single page and say, hmm, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice. This is, this is my fourth novel, so mm -hmm. it's nice to look and see that I'm actually creating a, a kind of a path. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk first about um, Cost, um, your new novel. It's the story of an American family. Um, tell us about the members of that family and, and, and where they are in their lives. It's um, Cost takes place within three generations of one family, and um, the opening scene of it takes place in an old Maine farmhouse which is owned by a woman called Julia Lambert. She's divorced, but she and her husband bought it years ago. She lives in New York. She's an art teacher at Columbia University and a painter. And she has her parents visiting her this summer. And her parents are, I think, 86 and 88. And uh, the relationship between Julia and her parents is the first part of the novel, uh, the, the sort of the problems of being an adult child and how you're torn between feelings of um, equality, that you are now an adult and they are adults and you ought to be, you ought to be on a level, level playing field, but it's, that never seems to take place. You always seem to be, um, your relationship always seems determined by the fact that you are a child and they are the parents. So it starts out with that dynamic, um, but also Julia has two sons, Stephen, who's 24, and Jack, who's 22. And the scene 
um, soon shifts to Stephen, who's on a bus on his way up to visit his mother and grandparents. And he is coming back. He spent a couple of years in Seattle as an environmentalist, and he feels ready to move back to the Northeast and to do something new. So he's he's at a state of, of sort of a moment of flux in his life. Um, and Julia is about to um, be considered for tenure, so she's at the, a similar moment. And her parents are both feeling the slow um, encroachments of their age. So these are people that you, you know. <laughs> I know them very well. Yeah. I do, yeah. Once I start a novel, I get to know the characters very well before it moves on. So mm-hmm. yes, these are people that are very familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the, the bringing them to life on the page... Um, it's it's the telling of a story, but it's the development of characters. Um, t- tell us a little bit about um, once you had the, the story. I assume you started with story and then moved to characters or the other way around? Um, when I write a novel, I start out with a conflict hmm. and a set of characters. And I get to know the characters, and then they write the story. Okay. I don't have an outline. I don't know really where the story is going to end. Mm. It's the characters who decide that. Mm. But in this novel, I thought the conflict was this issue of being a good adult child. I thought that's what it was going to be about. And I thought it was um, going to be quiet and introspective and very muted and domestic. And then on the bus, Stephen starts remembering his visit to his younger brother. And it became apparent to me, listening to Stephen's thoughts, that Jack was a heroin addict. So all of a sudden, the book was completely different. Mm. And and he he struggles as to what to tell um, his mother about this situation. And his mother um, suspects or has some feelings, but doesn't want to know that. Maybe we could start um, with you doing a reading about that that dynamic where um, Stephen and Julia are talking, um, and um, well, just we'll we'll just go um, to that that particular scene. Yeah, this is this is when Stephen has arrived at the house in Maine, and he and his mother are sitting alone, and she's asking him about his younger brother. After a moment, Stephen answered saying nothing was also taking a position. Okay, he said reluctantly. Okay. I think he's in trouble. I think it's bad. The words echoed oddly in Julia's head. What do you mean, bad? Julia did not look at him. The air had taken on some kind of charge. I think he's on serious drugs. What kind? Her chest felt constricted. Heroin, Stephen said. There was the word. He'd loosed it like a snake, quick, black, lethal, whiplashing fast and horribly into their world. But it wasn't his fault, was it? The word had already entered his brother's world, the long black shape sliding into the crevices of his brother's life, vanishing into the shadows, where it was coiling and expanding, gathering strength, taking up more and more space, crowding out the life that had been there. Heroin. The word was too large for her to absorb. Julia felt its sickening impact. It had a dark, absorbent presence, lethal, endless. It became so suddenly, it became suddenly so large in her mind 
that she could not think exactly what it was. Was it from poppies, or was that opium? Were they the same? You inject heroin, right? She was groping for balance, trying to keep herself upright with facts. Injection, addiction. She wanted something hard and substantial. Stephen nodded. Or you sniff it. Most addicts shoot it up. Julia tried to focus. Nodding off. That was heroin, wasn't it? Wasn't it what you dissolved in a spoon? Or was that crack cocaine? The rubber hose tugged tight around the arm, the glinting needle. Wasn't that heroin? She'd seen it in movies, but what she knew had turned incoherent and confused. None of it could have anything to do with her son. You don't know this for sure, she said. I don't know it for sure. It's what I think. Something was swinging back and forth in her brain. Why do you think it's heroin, Julia asked. A lot of things. The way he acts, said Stephen. Which is? Different from the way he used to be. How? Not like how he is on pot. Pot makes you goofy. It's kind of mindless and innocent. Everything's funny, and then you go to sleep. But on heroin, everything is slowed way, way down. It's heavier, said Stephen. People act like they're nearly asleep. You've been pulled into somewhere separate from the rest of the world. This was like receiving a penal sentence. Every word felt hammered into her skull. She did not believe it, though this very word was the one she'd dreaded. The word was killing, toxic. She'd heard it, but could not receive it into her mind. You might be mistaken, she said. Mom, Steve said soberly, you should see him. He's living in this filthy place. Everything's a mess. After he buzzed me in, it took him a really long time to answer the door. I had the feeling that he'd just done something. He acted weird, and his eyes were pinned. The pupils were like pinpoints. That's what happens with heroin. She looked at Stephen. He met her gaze. You could be wrong, Julia said. Her chest had grown larger. It had grown huge, and her heart was laboring to work inside its chasm. She could hear the blood pounding in her ears. I could be wrong, Stephen agreed, but you asked me what I thought. He had blood on his shirt cuffs from shooting up. I think he's on heroin. Julia put her face down on her knees and closed her eyes. People died from this. She could feel the sun on her hair. She saw sunspots in the darkness behind her eyes. There was a roaring in her ears. Without lifting her head, she spoke. But wouldn't we know if he was, Julia asked? Wouldn't it be obvious? I mean, she stopped. She didn't know what she meant. She felt as though she'd been bargaining with someone, with something, for years. Over and over, she'd yielded reluctantly, accepting facts she wanted to deny. She had agreed reluctantly to pot and drinking. Lack of responsibility, failure to do this and that. Yes, they were true. She'd accepted all those things, really, so she'd never have to accept this. Not that this made any sense. She was raving. Who was she bargaining with? But she'd had the notion that there'd be some sort of payoff later, some sort of reward, not for herself, but for all of them, for the family, a badge of merit for entering the crisis, accepting it. How could this be right? Over and over, all those crises over Jack, the family had gone through them, and they'd done well, hadn't they? 
They should get badges, not this body blow. Jack, her beautiful, pearly darling, people died from this. Mm, thank you. Our guest this morning on Talk of the Town is Roxana Robinson, and she's been reading from her new novel, Cost. Roxana is the um, author of three earlier novels, Sweetwater, My Daughter, and Summer Light. And uh, her four, fourth novel has just been published, Cost. Um, you can participate in this conversation with the author a little later on um, by giving us a call. You might want to make note of the number now, one 866 6259378 and I'll repeat that later on in the program. So the family is is slowly coming to to grips with with uh, um, Jack's addiction. Um, but there's this notion of of bargaining. Um, talk a little bit about that. I think it's something that we do um, although we're unaware of it. This notion that if you're good bad things won't happen or if you uh, do one thing. If you have a, if you've fallen, hurt your foot, then you won't get behind in your mortgage payments. <laughs> you know this this completely irrational notion that there's some kind of um, power somewhere that that is meeting out um, mm-hmm. challenges, and this feels so deeply unfair to Julia, who's a very concerned mother, mm-hmm. very loving, very responsible. And she's always been frightened by her younger son's behavior and has done everything she thought she could do. And so learning this, even hearing that it's a possibility, is completely devastating to her. And she denies it on one level while trying to deal with it on another. But some part of her... um, believes in magical thinking like Joan Didion's book that that somehow you can you can insist that it's not true on a level that that you don't examine. Mm. Mm. So just to advance the story, um, um, the family does come to believe that um, Jack is addicted um, and uh, believe that the best way to approach that is to bring him to Maine as well. Um, tell us a little bit about the development in there. Um, like any family faced with a crisis like this, at the outset, um, nobody knows what to do. And so Julia tries to call people and find out uh, what should be done. And and she decides that um, that they need to have a family conference. So she calls her ex-husband, and there is a little negotiation there. He's not initially willing, um, but they decide that this must take place. And and then they sort of make a bargain with Jack and use what he needs, which is money, um, to persuade him to uh, come up to Maine and, and take part in this family conference. Mm. And, and he's using the money to buy. Right. So um, the, the family uh, brings Jack to Maine, um, and then there's a series of incidents. We don't need to go into them because I think there's some – it's really wonderful storytelling to, to get to the point where the family is able to intervene. Um, Jack um, enters um, the hospital. Um, want to pick up the story there and, and um, switch to Jack's uh, perspective. And one of the things that you do so well in the novel, I think, is is to move so seamlessly from one point of view to the other um, in a very natural way, as though you are inhabiting 
um, the life of, of each of these characters. So let's pick it up from, from where Jack is, is in the hospital. Jack, Jack is in the throes of heroin withdrawal, and he is taken to the hospital because he's having uh, extreme symptoms, and so he's, uh, he's, been, he's now alone in the hospital. At night, <clears throat> Jack rolled his head slowly back and forth on the pillow. He wondered who was behind the, the curtain, the other patient. The nurse went there to do something noiseless. Maybe somebody, maybe whoever was there was mute, maybe asleep, maybe, maybe comatose. That'd be good, he thought. He felt nauseated again, his stomach cramping. He'd vomited all day. There was nothing left inside him but a foul-smelling gruel. He could feel it coming on again, though, his gut starting to heave. He considered calling the nurse to ask for the basin. The nurse was vast and disapproving, with limp blonde hair and a small, mean mouth. Well, why wouldn't she hate drug addicts? It's our own fault. We could quit any time, and we just don't. Instead, we take up space in the hospitals and the doctor's time, and the fat nurses, feeding off the system, taking advantage. He rolled his head again. It was in his calves now, his knees, the muscles jerking and cramping hard. It was like being squeezed by a giant. It came and went in waves. He'd hated it when his parents came in, and Stephen. His mother tried to kiss him, and he flinched. He couldn't stand being touched. It was like something electric crawling on his skin. Don't worry, Jackie. We're going to get you out of here, she said. We're going to get you well. They'd come again today, talking about rehab. Everyone crying. He'd cried, too. All right, I'll quit. Of course he would if he could. He was always ready to quit. He hated remembering it, crying and stumbling around in that fog of shame and nausea. It was night now. They didn't really care about the pain. Things were getting bad again. He could feel it starting up. He wanted the nurse, but he didn't want her to see him like this, kicking. He closed his eyes tightly. This was so screwed up. The nurse was supposed to be giving him something, and why wasn't she? He opened his eyes, which were watering, and lifted his head. He felt for the cord laced through the bed railings. He found the button and pressed it. Where was she, his monstrous angel? She was hiding somewhere on the ward. She had shut herself into some closet, or she was ducking down behind some counter, eating, wolfing down cakes, stuffing food into her giant belly. She must eat all the time to maintain that mass. He imagined her intestines, snaking back and forth, dense, compacted, a hideous mass of jellied eels, stuffing her skin to bursting. Where was she? He pressed the button. His calves were on fire, his legs. What was the point of these things if they didn't work? He lay back on the pillow. His legs were on fire. He could feel them kicking and jerking. His arms had no power in them. Deliberately, he tensed the muscles in his arms, then relaxed them. He kept his eyes closed. He could see them, the inside of his arms, the bruised, flaming skin, the secretive blue lines of the veins below. Sweet, he thought, and all at once, all of this fell away, and he was longing for the endless black velvet, the sweet, dark place. Panic rose in his chest. Christ, he thought, Christ. He rolled his head from side to side again. He would have to get out of here. The muscles in his calves clenched horribly. He began to shake. A wave of chills and panic swept through him, and it became hard to breathe. He was alone in here. He was alone and in danger. Anything could happen to him now. 
His hands, he realized, were fists. The nurse appeared in the doorway. We can hear you, you know, she said, when you ring, the first time. Jack looked at her. Wasn't that the point? Sorry, he said. Did I hold it down too long? What is it, she asked. My legs, Jack said. I've got cramps and nausea, plus the chills. The nurse waited, her mouth pursed. Her dress hung smoothly from her enormous waist. How could a dress be that big? Can you give me something, asked Jack. You're having withdrawal symptoms, the nurse said. She was slouching, her weight leaning against the door. She didn't hold herself well. No pride, he thought. No pride in being a fat nurse. Right, Jack said. I am. I wondered if you could give me something to take the edge off. Take the edge off. A junkie's phrase. He shouldn't have used that. He shouldn't sound like a junkie. He should sound like a straight person. Upstanding, responsible, normal. He should say something like, I wonder if you could do something to alleviate my symptoms, which are becoming severe. Jack smiled stiffly at her, raising his eyebrows in appeal. Now it was his spine, an injection of fire. His legs suddenly jerked, hard and uncontrollable. The nurse did not smile back. She had one hand on the doorknob, ready to leave. You're having withdrawal symptoms, she said again. Please, Jack said. He closed his eyes as the wave of chills and shivering hit him, then opened them again. Look, the doctor said he'd give me something. He told me. The nurse lifted her chin and stared at him. On her great bosom, which was not actually so big, given her size, but anyway wide and deep, was a card with a name on it. He couldn't read it from this far away. He wondered what her name was. Meredith? Angelica? Tony Soprano? You've been given clonidine, she said accusingly. That was then, Jack said, it's worn off. His body felt light and useless, as though it were about to be discarded. Nausea rose up again. It seemed to have taken up residence in his body, spreading through him at intervals like a tide. The nurse raised her eyebrows without altering her expression. Could I have some more, he asked. He closed his eyes again for the, the chills, opened them. You had your medication at 11.20, Ms. Soprano said. I can't give you any more until 1.20. Jesus, Jack said distinctly. Can I talk to the doctor? He's gone home, said the nurse, sounding pleased. She set a hand on her great hip with satisfaction. Her hands were tiny but fat. He left instructions. Is there anything else? Because I have other duties. Yes, Jack said, arching his back. He closed his eyes against the pain. I'd like a great big wet kiss. The nurse closed the door behind her. Jack opened his eyes in the silence. He was sweating and his nose was running. He looked at the ceiling, then at the curtain that hung between his bed and the next. He listened. A distant radio somewhere, no voices. He could hear no footsteps, no traffic in the halls. He drew in a long breath, expelled it slowly. It would get worse. The dope was roiling around inside him, declaring war. It was the absence of dope, really. Hell hath no fury like that of a habit scorned. His calves clenched again and his leg kicked. He felt the wave of contraction move through his whole body, a paroxysm. 
He would stop this. He had to end it. When his muscles unclenched, he sat up, squinting as the shivering started, and slid his legs out of bed. He was naked except for a faded green hospital gown, open at the back. He put his bare feet on the floor and tested his weight, then stood shakily. He ripped the bandage off his arm and peered at the IV needle. Such a waste, that beautiful, clean little entry. He slid it out. A bright bead of blood grew on his skin. Thank you, Roxana Robinson, reading from her new novel, Cost. Um, Roxana is the uh, author of three short story collect- collections, um, A Perfect Stranger, Asking for Love, and A Glimpse of Scarlet, as well as her novels, and, and a biography of Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, Roxana spends uh, part of her year each year in Maine and New York City. Um, Roxana, that uh, particular piece um, is from Jack's uh, point of view. Um, how did you get to that place? It's, it's hard to answer that. Um, I, I wanted to write this book from a variety of points of view, and so it, it takes place. Um, you go into the minds of Edward and Catherine, who were the grandparents who were in their 80s, and Julia and her sister, who were probably in their 50s, and Jack and Stephen. So it's two members of each generation. How I get into any of their minds is is something, as I say, I can't exactly answer in any rational way. It, it has to do with um, a kind of a, a deep listening, as a fr- another writer friend of mine said once when she was asked about her work. It's, it's being attentive to the character. It's a character I have come to know very well. I learn a lot about their lives. Um, and then I enter into it. And Jack is someone who is whose life is very dramatic, and he's going through something very powerful. And I can't tell you how I... I can't tell you. I just go there. Great, great. Well, um, I want to um, kind of ask you to do one more reading. One of the, the two characters you just mentioned, the grandparents, are fascinating um, uh, people, and each um, very strong um, in their own ways. Through this process, um, Edward comes to reflect on his life and um, sees... Um, some things that he's done um, as a surgeon, um, mastering that surgery and just reveling in that mastery. Um, but he sees some of the cost um, to the others in his life. So I'd like to have the, the readings conclude with um, Edward's perspective um, at the, the end of, of uh, towards the end of the novel. This is, this is a, a fam- family gathering. Mm. Catherine looked from Harriet to Julia. And just remind me again what it is that's going to start. She spoke in a half-whisper, humorous. Uh, the, the reason Catherine asks this is that she's losing her memory. Her daughters looked at her. We're going to talk to Jack about his addiction to heroin, said Julia. Heroin, said Catherine. Oh, dear. That's very bad, isn't it? Julia nodded. She could hear her footsteps over. She could hear footsteps overhead. Very bad. Catherine turned to Edward. Did you know about this? Her voice was lowered. Edward looked at her, his eyes full of grief. He nodded. Caddy's announcement had wakened in him a, sh- a sense of shame. She had, uh, the, for the for the listeners, um, Catherine had told her husband that she thought she was losing her memory. He felt as though a blazing mirror had been held up to him. 
It was as though his entire life were being reassessed by someone else. He was powerless to control it, forced to observe it. He found himself wondering what sort of a marriage Catherine had had, a question that had never occurred to him before. The idea itself was a kind of shock, that there might be another alternative view of their life together. He'd always seen himself as the center of things, moving across the landscape of their life like a roiling storm center on a weather map. His work, his needs, his friends had determined everything, where they lived, who they saw, how they lived. This had always seemed right to him. He'd given them all a good life, his family, hadn't he? He was proud of the life they'd had. But now it seemed different. He could no longer see it from inside, from inside himself. He thought things might have been different for Catherine, that she might have been at the center of another system, possibly just as strong, just as roiling, but invisible on his map. Getting older, it was impossible to th see things the way you'd always seen them before. It was some sort of trick of perspective. The landscape shifted. You could no longer see things as they'd always been. This news of Caddy's was changing everything. He didn't think she'd resented him. What he was afraid of was something else. He imagined a wave of loneliness washing over her as he'd set off in the morning for the hospital. Or worse, a wave of loneliness while he was with her, still absorbed by his world. Had she asked him things, told him things that he ignored? Had she, had she felt solitude while they sat at dinner, or as he lay in bed thinking about the surgery the next day, or taking a, a foreign student into the program, or writing proposals for new equipment? Those were the topics that had drawn him. He'd spent his whole life thinking about them. What had Caddy's life been spent on? He could not say. The whole machinery of his life had excluded her. What had she thought about while he was thinking of these things? The life they'd led had been his. Catherine was touched by his look at his being so moved by Jack's trouble. She patted his hand. Sad, isn't it, she whispered, and he nodded. Had she felt appreciated? Had she understood that he'd needed her? He had. But whatever kind of marriage it had been, it was nearly over. More than fifty years. It was too late for second thoughts, making reparations. All those years had been lived. He understood that she'd delivered him, herself to him in a way he had never done for her. Her life had been offered to him. She'd lived his life without complaint. This notion was so powerful, so humbling, that he could hardly think of anything else, could hardly focus on all this, the reason they were here. Mm. And of course, the reason they are there is to, to um, intervene um, with, with Jack. Um, without revealing the end of the novel necessarily, what compelled these people who are separate in their lives, what compelled them to come together um, in this attempt? Um, it's the, it's a, a, a deep need that is felt by the whole family. And Julia rallies her family and requests help from them in a way that is very uncommon within her family. They don't ask each other for help. They're uh, rather distant as a family. They see each other, and they go through the the form, sort of, of being a good family, but they 
there are a lot of tensions in between the members. And so for Julia to ask her parents and ask her sister for help to come to her house and engage in this is um, very challenging for her. So it's another task that she has to perform in order to try to save her son. Mm-hmm. So these these characters um, that you uh, brought to life, um, they they are a family, even in their separateness, and they 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 sense that need. They do, they do. They're it's they're they're people who have grown into sort of solitary positions, but they certainly know they're a family. And like all families, even even distant families, there's a a highly charged connection between members. It may be buried, it may be um, denied, but it's there. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll also turn this open to the, our listeners. If you want to participate in our conversation this morning with Roxana Robinson, the author of a new novel called Cost, about uh, heroin addiction and its impact on families, please give us a call at one 866 625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. Um, please uh, give us a call with your questions or your comments. Um, the story is set in Maine, uh, uh, most of it. Um, how, is, how important is Maine in this particular novel? How important is place in all of your work? Um, place is very important to me. It, it sets the emotional scene for the characters. And in this book, uh, this old farmhouse, which I love myself very much, uh, is very important to Julia. It's a place that she loves. She's owned it for nearly 30 years. It was a, a large bone of contention in the divorce. Both she and her ex-husband wanted it. Determined to have it. It's the place that she comes to every summer. She she has a studio in the barn. She paints the landscape. Um, it's really the source of her artistic life. Um, and it gives her a sense of connection and richness that she doesn't have elsewhere in her life. So Maine, the idea of the old houses and the coastline and the salt air, um, those meadows, those wild meadows, that means a lot to me and it means a lot to this book. Mm. She actually, Julia, the character, actually puts the house, this place, on the line. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that she has to... Um, in this this notion of, of magical thinking, the, the, this sense of bargaining with unseen forces, the house is is um, put up sort of as a as an alternative to Jack's to losing Jack. Mm. Your research into um, heroin addiction um, provided you some of the background. Um, how difficult was it to to do that research? What what did you learn in the process in addition to the details of the book? Um, it was very sobering, um, as you can imagine. Uh, I did I did a lot of reading, and then I went into the world of addiction and recovery, the recovery community, and talked to people and listened to their stories, and um, just heard about this huge community that I hadn't known about, uh, and I felt tremendous sympathy and compassion for the people themselves and their families. It's, it's a very troubling place to be. Mm-hmm. And you've told me that, that readers who ha- um, uh, come to you with their own stories, this um, allows them to talk about stories that, that um, they perhaps haven't been able to share. There have been lots of people who have responded either through my website or have come to me at readings and said, 
you know, how did you know that this was what it was like? Or this is my story. My daughter is in rehab. Or this is this has happened to my nephew, and the whole family is being torn apart. And people are saying it, it's a great relief to see it um, revealed that this is the this is the torturing process. Mm. Mm. We'll remind our listeners they can participate as well by calling 1-866-625-9378 as we talk with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, Cost, and, and other writing. Um, one of the questions that I, I imagine um, others will have, as I did, was there anything that this family could have done um, in advance? You, you know, um, talk about um, the intervention. Um, and Julia, the mother, um, thinks that she's done fairly well in, in bringing up her children and holding things together. Did you discover anything in, in your, your uh, research that says, oh, these are some practices that good families or, or families should think about before um, teenagers get to the age of experimentation? What, what, is that more bargaining? <laughs> um, the only thing, I mean, it seems to me that this can hit any family at any time, but um, so no family should feel guilt mm. at 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 its presence, but it also seems from talking to people that um, this is not news. But staying close to your kids, listening to them, paying attention to what they're doing, asking them questions, um, giving them certain guidelines and rules uh, can help. And and f- the presence of family, the presence of concerned and interested parents who really are watching their children and and listening to them not just not just giving them rules but listening and and asking them questions and participating it's hard because at that moment in your child's life it's it's often one when they are trying to keep their parents at arm's length mm. um, but that's the that's the the dangerous passage when when uh, kids may want to experiment may not want to talk to their parents and that's when parents have to be um, very attentive, very, mm. very engaged. Mm. One of you, I think, one of your reviewers used the word uh, words beyond reason and love. That addiction lies beyond the ability to reason this out, or that the power of love is going to change things. Um, that must have been one of the stories, or one of the, the messages you got from your research. Yeah, uh, it was very painful talking and listening to to parents who had gone through this process your your first thought when you realize your child is at risk is to reach out and you know your your job as a parent has always been to protect your children and you do it initially physically you pick your child up you hold him in your arms you you know you smooth away the the hurt you, physical presence plays a big part in, in your protection, and then um, emotional presence does. And so you have the feeling for years that this is how you protect your child. And and in the case of heroin addiction, it's important, uh, love and physical presence, but it can no longer solve the problem alone. So mm. there are m- other forces that you have to bring to bear. Mm. We're talking with Roxana Robinson about her novel Cost. Uh, you can participate as well by calling one 625 We do have a caller on the line. Uh, please go ahead and perhaps give us your name and where you're calling from before you share your comment or your question. Hello, this is Lucinda in Belfast. I'm enjoying the show quite a bit. I have a question about the process of research for a writer, particularly a novelist. Um, I'm interested in how um, Ms. Robinson got permission to share such intimate stories. And, of course, she's a published writer with a reputation. 
um, maybe she could address how some unpublished writers without any particular reputation that precedes them um, can get access to this kind of material. And then I'll just hang up because I like to listen to the answer. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Bye. Um, as I say, I, first of all, I did a lot of reading, so that's um, avail- material that's available to anyone. And then um, I talk to people, and, uh, you know, when you go into another community, there are a lot of people who certainly have never heard of me uh, who are healthcare workers or people in rehab, uh, so I don't think it was my reputation. But um, talking to people... Uh, depends getting the confidence of someone depends on your manner and and the way you present yourself and the people I spoke to were very generous and um, willing to share I think they cared a lot about helping people and understood that I was trying to find out um, to bear witness to something that that's um, a, a terrible problem for some people so I think it was um, really a face-to-face contact and, and presenting who you are and what you want to do and then, then listening to the response. Right. So you're, you're saying that person-to-person, developing the rapport person-to-person, and then the fact that you're a writer is, is in addition to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um, see if there are other calls. 1-866-625-9378. We're in a conversation with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, Cost. Let's turn to your life as a writer, if you, if we could. Um, a little bit of background on yourself, if you could. And, and when did you start to write? When did you know that writing was the thing that, that, that um, compels you? Well, I started to write when everyone else did, which mm. was at the age of six. Um, it's just that writers keep on writing mm. when after college. So but I always wrote. I always enjoyed to ri- writing. Um, uh, it was always part of my life, and I can't really explain it. It's like saying, "When did you learn to walk?" or mm. "Why are you mm-hmm. still walking?" Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just what I do. And I certainly did other things when I left college. I I had other jobs. I worked in the art world for a number of years, which is how I got interested in Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, but writing was always important to me, and I wrote fiction even while I was working in the art world. Um, that was sort of my night job, mm. was writing fiction. And it's the way that I, that I interpret the world. It's the way I, I explain things to myself. Mm. I write about things that I find troubling or complicated or um, incomprehensible, and that's the way I make sense of them. Mm, making sense. <laughs> that's, that's important in this day and age. Talk, if you could, about some of the themes that you've dealt with in, in past writing and, and, and then how that perhaps relates to cost. Well, when I finished cost, I realized that, that I had, it was sort of the, the third in a series, a, a trilogy, that I had been writing about a certain kind of entitlement and that the first in that series was This Is My Daughter, which came out in 1998. And that's about uh, two parents who've been married before, each with a daughter from the earlier marriage, who get married and try to create a new family. And it's terribly difficult. They have a disastrous time of it. And I wrote it because I was seeing at that time um, in the late 80s and the early 90s, it seemed to me that everyone I knew was getting divorced and getting remarried and everyone was pretending that it was really easy and that it was 
really simple to create this new blended family and that stepchildren all love their stepparents and the stepparents all love their new stepchildren. And it's not easy. It's very difficult. And it's sort of against the biological laws, um, this attempt to mix parents and children. So the notion that um, you could always start over, that you were entitled if you were if you were responsible and you were trying hard and you had certain resources at your disposal, that you could accomplish this, the notion, this American notion of entitlement, that we were entitled to a second marriage, a second life. We could always, it has something to do with the, the size of our continent, I think, that you can always move west, sell the house, get a new job, move west. <laughs> uh, so if you don't like your marriage, you just leave it, bring your children along to a new one and start over. And and that seemed to me really untrue. And um, it was a mistake, a philosophical error. So I wrote about that, um, what seemed to me closer to the reality that I was seeing. And then the next novel I, I wrote was called Sweetwater, and that has a family dynamic as well, but it was also about another kind of entitlement, which is the notion that Americans seem uh, on some level still to believe, which is that no matter what we do to the landscape, no matter what we do to the planet, we are still entitled to have it infinitely responsive, inf- infinitely generous, and unharmed, that it will always heal itself no matter what damage we do to it. And that also seems to me to be a misapprehension that uh, we're seeing the the costs of that. And then this this book, Cost, started out, as I say, um, with the notion that (laughs) this belief that once you had reached a certain place in your life when your children were launched and your parents were still healthy and uh, living alone, I mean living on their own, uh, that you would have a time to devote yourself to your own life uh, without without intervention from uh, the other the generations on either side, and and that also seems to me, as it I'm sure seems to anyone listening, <laughs> completely insane. That <laughs> um, there are always responsibilities that you that you owe to each generation on each either side of your own, and that part of your life will never happen. You will always be bound by certain bonds to your children and your parents, and those um, bonds will be tightened suddenly and without warning, and you must rise to that challenge. Mm. We, you can participate in this conversation as well here on Talk of the Towns, um, 1-866-625-9378, or locally, 469 We're talking with Roxana Robinson about the writing of cost and her um, work as a, as a writer. Um, when when uh, Julia, um, towards the end of the novel, um, she has an art show, and she has a lot of reflections about um, the her role as an artist and the role of critics, the role of the public. Um, are those are those your words? <laughs> are, are you are you in in Julia at that point talking about your writing? Um, it's certainly it certainly draws on my feelings about being a, a writer and. Uh, writers always use some other world besides their own uh, to reflect on their own lives. So in part, it's about, yes, it's about being a writer and what the cr- critics are going to say. Um, but it's also it's also really about the art world, which I love and feel very connected to. Mm-hmm. And so I could have 
reading um, in a way that was separate from me thinking about writing. But it's it's connected and 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 also different. Mm. So um, I can imagine it's not scary to to write, but it must be scary to put it in print. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Writing is very solitary, and when you make mistakes, no one knows you're you're alone in your room, and you can look at a chapter later and say, "This is terrible," and out it goes. Um, but when you send off the whole manuscript, then you will be judged on it, and all those errors that you didn't notice at the time, or something that's not clear. Um, you know, when you have a conversation with a friend and. They, she calls you later and says, what did you mean when you said such and such? You can explain it. But if it, when you do that in a book, it's fixed forever. And people will say, she's an idiot. She, <laughs> why did she say this? It's clearly not true. So you can't continue that conversation. You, you've said something and it's there forever. So that's daunting. You have to, you feel as if, I feel as if I have to get every word right before it gets out. And even then, there are people who don't get it or don't understand it. So, mm. yeah, mm. it's challenging. Mm. And how about the, 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 the role of editor, the role of, of the people who help you get to that stage of getting the book in print? What's that process like for you? Um, I have a wonderful editor, Sarah Crichton at Ferris Strauss, and she, what, an, what a good editor does, what she does is say, I didn't understand this character here, or this character isn't sympathetic over this point which is very illuminating to me because the, I, I find all the characters sympathetic, for example. And if some piece of action is not clear, then it just means I need to explain it to Clara. It feels to me as though I'm walking through a cave with a flashlight, and if I haven't illuminated one corner, I am happy to do so. So I just move the beam over there and mm. include it. Mm. Um, but that's that's what my editor did, more or less. It, you know, point out places where I hadn't, um, made a character, uh, the motivation clear, or or the sympathies clear. Mm. We probably have time for a, a phone call if you're a listener and would like um, to add your comments or, or thoughts or questions. Um, give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We're talking with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, um, Cost. What what conditions do you um, look for as a, as a writer? Do, you come to Maine. Do you do a lot of writing in Maine, or do you equally write in New York City? I do a lot of writing in Maine. Actually, my best writing time in Maine is in the winter. Mm. Um, I come up often in the winter, uh, and it's it's wonderful for writing. It's dark. It's cold. It's warm inside the house, and uh, it, it's it's a very quiet time, and so it's very reflective and good for um, that kind of interior concentration. In the summer, I love it here, but it's not my best time for writing. I'm drawn to the outdoors, and I spend a lot of time staring out across the hillsides mm. and not writing. And out of doors, um, you, you write a lot about out of doors in, in other um, arenas. Um, talk about um, that. Have you always been out of doors as, as, a, as, as a young person and, and as an adult? I have spent a lot of time out of doors, yes. Um, my parents were very uh, understanding, and they allowed me to have a horse when I was 10 or 12, I guess. So I spent a huge amount of time outside with my horse riding or brushing her or letting her graze, and uh, I had a dog. So from the very, yeah, from the time I've been 12, I've spent 
huge amounts of time um, gardening, walking, riding, hiking, um, my, it's sailing too. My mm-hmm. husband likes to sail, so being outdoors is is a big part of my life. Mm. And you use use that experience um, uh, to to write columns. To to uh, it, it's a, another form of your artistic kind of expression. It seems like. I do. I write, I've written over the last uh, ten years or so. I've written quite a number of columns that have been in local main papers and some local papers elsewhere um, about the environment, about things I've seen, animals, birds, um, monarch butterflies, op-ed pieces about the environment. Um, yeah, it's something that concerns me. Mm. And you're on the board of Maine Coast Heritage Trust? I am. Mm. Talk about that. What what um, draws you to that work? Um, Maine, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Maine Coast Heritage Trust is a wonderful organization that is dedicated to preserving the coastline and to preserving the wilderness and the um, natural splendors that we are all fortunate to have in Maine. Um, They work with communities, they work with local people who are concerned about this and want to keep it accessible to local people but keep it from being developed in ways that's um, that would be detrimental to the community and to the environment. So it's a great organization um, that works very effectively to maintain islands and coastlines so that we can all enjoy them. Great. Well, I, I, we're about at the end of the hour, so I won't encourage um, more calls, but um, I think this the, the one caller we had um, asked about writing. Um, what advice or, or counsel or support could you give those who might be listening who are, are approaching it not because necessarily they're interested in you know, addiction and families, but the, the life of the writer, what encouragement you might provide? Oh, um, well, I always tell my students just to keep writing, to keep writing. Um, it doesn't matter if, as I say, when you write, you're alone. It doesn't matter if you do it wrong. It doesn't matter if you do it badly. The thing is to keep going. Just keep going and write about what troubles you. Write about the most difficult things. Write about the things that disturb you, that you don't understand, that frighten you. Um, That's where the important stuff comes from. And just keep going. Keep mm. going. Keep on. Great. And um, you're going to be doing some readings in Maine. Um, got that list um, handy so we can um, share where and when you might be um, uh, doing some readings. Yeah, I I will be at uh, at Jackson Memorial Library in Tenants Harbor on July 15th, and then I'll be at Portnastorm Bookstore in Somesville on August 3rd and at the Blue Hill Public Library on August 7th, and at the Northeast Harbor Library on August 27th. Great. Well, um, we're about the end. I, I guess I wanted to add a couple of references um, to folks who might be interested in, in uh, um, heroin addiction. Um, the Office of Substance Abuse here in Maine has a wonderful website. So if you um, use your search engine for Maine Office of Substance Abuse, uh, you'll get some wonderful resources. Um, if you're interested in treatment, um, the uh, Open Door Recovery Center in Ellsworth um, would be happy to talk with you. Uh, Barbara Royal and her staff um, in Ellsworth, 6673. Two one zero, or the uh, the center um, uh, over in uh, Southwest Harbor. Ed Ashley um, and his staff two four 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 zero one two. If you want resources that might um, help you or your family in in the area of uh, addiction. 
Roxanne, any, any um, final thoughts about um, families and, and how they kind of pull together in their separateness? Well, for me, the family is the great subject. The family is the, is the crucible. It's where all the most powerful emotions arise and are played out. And uh, it's where really the great literature comes from. Oedipus and Sophocles and, and uh, King Lear and Anna Karenina. It's, it's, it's really the, the, great, the great landscape. So for me, uh, um, following a family through a test like this is, I think, a privilege. And it allows me to expand my understanding of the family and to understand the nature of challenges that, are, that a family can face. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being our guest on Talk of the Towns. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Roxana Robinson for being with us this morning. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with questions and comments. Thanks to our underwriters at Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>